Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. It's good to be here. It is good to be here, isn't it? Very, very good. So I said greetings from Wellington and, uh, and from my wife Chrissy uh, sends her love. I don't think she's ever been to church here. So, yeah, yeah, I should, I should. She doesn't like to um, travel. No, she loves to travel. She has lots of responsibilities, which I don't have. Uh, <laughs> as a father, I just say, see you later. And uh, no, anyway, and uh, we have four children, if you don't know us, and our oldest, Madeline, is 15. She's doing NCA this year. Uh, we have a 13-year-old son, Elliot, an 11-year-old, nearly 11-year-old son, Austin, and we have a 7-year-old daughter, Lucia. Remember the name, say it. Lucia. Lucia Smith. You need to know the name because she already is the queen of all earth, right? You, you need to remember the name because at some point she will be ordering you to do something and you'll say to yourself, who made her queen of the universe? And I want to tell you this, she made herself queen of the universe. She's literally in charge of everything. Uh, and so just keep an eye out for her. You just want to stay on her good side. Uh, anyway, anyway, I was thinking recently, I've contemplated my life because I've changed jobs recently. Uh, I have been employed as the senior pastor of Equipus Church in Wellington for some years, uh, and that's been a fun job. Uh, and uh, and uh, so that's been good, but um, I, we felt that it was a, the season was coming to an end. So across about a two-year period, we're journeying with uh, John O'Brown, Emma Brown, uh, who have grown up in the church, and so uh, they actually taken over the leadership at the end of May uh, and doing a fantastic job. And I've started working in other ways to try and make money. Um, obviously, I'm avoiding anything illegal, uh, but all other options are open. So if you have a job that you want me to do, just let me know. As long as it pays serious money, I'll be interested in it. Um, but in changing jobs, I was considering all the different things I've done, you know, because you end up with a bit of a career. And I've done a lot of, it turns out I've done a lot of dangerous jobs. Because uh, I'm a dangerous sort of person. You guys are laughing at the wrong, the wrong sort of bits. Um, <laughs> do I not exude some sort of level of intimidatory threat? <laughs> no, I need to work on it. I'm going to buy a different jacket. The, um... The reality is, I've done a lot of dangerous jobs, and some people have already laughed, but I was at one time a youth worker when Bola Fakalata was a youth, right? So this is a dangerous job. I, I, I was a furniture removalist long before they had anything like health and safety regulations, where two people were expected to carry a piano. Yeah, so I can do half a piano if you, I could, I can't, but I could. Uh, I've done a lot of dangerous jobs. I was probably the most dangerous job I've ever done of all the jobs, including being a youth pastor. And being a senior pastor is relatively dangerous in the legal liability sense. Uh, but uh, my most dangerous job I've ever done was I was a primary school teacher. Uh, are there any primary school teachers here? Come on. Best job in the world. Nine till three, 12 weeks off a year. So amazing. You get to strike whenever you want to. <laughs> primary school teachers go on strike. Do we still pay our taxes? Yes, we do. I tried to strike my taxes, and they didn't allow it. I said, the teachers are on strike. I'm going on strike with paying them. But I uh, didn't know. Anyhow, well, I was a primary school teacher. Short hours, lots of holidays, but dangerous. Really, really dangerous. You know, you look at me strangely, but I've actually had to stare down 
the like the eleven year old fetal alcohol affected children of parts of London that you wouldn't visit, right? With a, with a broken ruler, a fire in their eyes, and it, you know, ten minutes later you have to hand out differentiated worksheets to five different ability groups, right? You get paper cuts as well as a stab wound to the spleen. All in one day, right? The reality is it's the most dangerous thing ever. At the very pinnacle of dangerous jobs in the teaching world is the teaching of physical education. That was my specialty. Uh, you know, obviously in primary school you don't get to specialize much, but you do get to swap around with other teachers. And then obviously in primary school there's a lot of teachers who like to teach maths and reading, and there's only a handful of people, the men, who'd like to just teach Physical education and silent reading. These were my two strong suits. <laughs> right? Obviously, obviously, physical education, I love teaching physical education, particularly because you get to play soccer against little kids, and they're useless. <laughs> they're literally useless. It's the best. And I won every game. My team would always win. I'd pick the best players. We'd win, right? All the time, right? And, um, and the other thing about the silent reading is, well, you have to model it. That's one of the things about teaching. You have to model the life of the, the, the model the attitudes of a lifelong learner, something like that. Uh, and so I used to get to read the newspaper every day and play soccer. It was basically brilliant. It's brilliant. Anyway, the very pinnacle of danger is physical education. At the pinnacle of the pinnacle of dangerous activities is the teaching of athletics. Not the running, because there's always a fast kid who can demonstrate that. You don't need to hurt yourself. But at some point, you have to teach them to throw stuff. Now, somebody said javelin, but this is, the, this is the, obviously not a professional. Javelin is not as dangerous as the discus. <laughs> right? So, yeah, there's a teacher on the front row. She's like, yeah, right. She's just rubbing the side of her head. Yeah. There's a couple of reasons. One of the things that's happened is that the javelin has been largely phased out. You know, the javelin you're thinking of, metal object, sharpened at both ends. Who thought this was a good idea in school? I don't know, but like it was, right? But so the javelin sharpened at both ends has been largely phased out uh, by the vortex, which is a, a, a rubbery American football with a colorful tail and it whistles when you throw it. Now, if we wanted to have a discussion about the breakdown in standards of education driven by a crazy left-wing government, this is a place we could start. <laughs> We're not having that conversation, so let's just step back from the political brink, Right? The javelin's been phased out for health and safety reasons, but largely, like everything else, budgetary, right? The cost of a javelin versus the cost of a vortex, especially because these are all going over the fence, right? So they might as well be cheap. Okay, so the, 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 the reality is, I can remember the first time I taught it, I was, I was a student teacher, and I was teaching at Mount Roskill uh, Intermediate, about 38 kids in the class, right? 38 kids, student teacher, the the main teacher person, nowhere to be seen, right? And I was pushing a shopping trolley. No one knows where the school got all the shopping trolleys from. But I was pushing a shopping trolley full of discuses. Uh, and there was another, uh, the biggest form two in the class, slightly bigger than me, was pushing a shopping trolley full of javelins. And as we were walking out, I thought to myself, oh, this could get a bit dangerous. You know when you're in the middle of something, you realize there needed to be some planning before now. You know, when you're driving off on holiday, you're like, where are we staying? You know, those moments where you think, where's the re like Netflix, 30 seconds. I just want to go back 30 seconds 
and put in a health and safety plan. So I had to make it up as I went. So I thought to myself, let's not all throw this at once. That was first of all, let's take turns. So I thought, uh, and, and then I thought I'd give them some instruction. Right, and then I thought, I need to stand somewhere. I need to think carefully about where I am standing. Secondarily, I need to think carefully about where the children who aren't throwing the javelins are standing, right? So anyway, I lined them up in groups of about 10, and the rest of them sort of against the fence. Isn't it weird? The teachers always push you against something. You turn up against the fence. It's because you literally can't go to a place other than against something. Like Anyway, but moving on. 10 kids, javelins. And with the javelin, I was just like, you know, keep it simple, two steps and chuck it, you know. That was three steps, but only, you know. Anyway, two steps and chuck it. Now, the thing about the javelin is it's 90% of them are going to go that way. <laughs> right? 90% are going to go that way. So as the teacher, you could line the other kids up over there, and then I would stand off to the side so I could see what's happening, blow the whistle at the right time, give instructions, etc. right? And so two steps and throw. For, for some reason, 10% of the javelins still went that way towards the students would fire the javelins accidentally in reverse at their colleagues, right? Now, that's pretty dangerous, but not for the teacher because I could always have the way. But the discus, the discus, now we weren't teaching in the whole, this whole deal. No, because it's only intermediate school and we're not completely stupid. Right? We were just, but this, just this, there's enough potential for disaster. Just in that. Like, if you know what discus is, they're just a little thing. The school ones are like 500 grams, but they're just, they're just big enough to kill, kill a person. And, and so, you know, just this, that's enough. There's enough there for literally for the discus to literally just go anywhere. Like literally completely impossible to predict where this would go to, right? Now, some of you are looking bewildered. There, across the room, there's a bunch of people who are physically skilled and they can't understand what I'm talking about. Because if you want to throw it there, you just throw it there, Right? How many people do know what I'm talking about where it could just go anywhere? Like, if you were throwing it, you wouldn't make a bet about where it was going to go. Now, what happens in life, this is the thing about life, that you don't understand most of the time. And don't you think about it. I'll tell you this once. Don't think about it all the time because it's terrifying. Most of what you do is driven by deep and dark internal forces over which you have no control. So... When the discuses get thrown, let's, let's say there's 10 kids throwing a discus. The discuses are not driven by the child's conscious thought, but their subconscious hatred <laughs> of the teacher. <laughs> on account of that, on account of Freud and his evil work, I was hit by many discuses throughout my teaching career. I have no understanding where this deep hatred that drove the projectiles at me came from. But the reality I found in life is exactly the same as discuses. That when you throw a discus, the aim is really critical, and the, the aim is not quite what you think. Just about everything else, you sort of aim it where you want it to land. But a discus, you can't aim where it's going to land. Okay, I'll, I, I'll break it down for you, but I will not rap, right? So the, just relax, everyone who's, everyone just relax. If you're young, you can relax. I'm not going to rap. So the, 
When I throw, if I was throwing a discus, let's imagine I can throw a discus from here, oh gosh, all the way to the other side of the stage. Now, possibly, with a little bit of training, I could get further than that, right? If I was throwing a discus, any one of you could die. But the reality is, it's going to go that way, and it's going to go about as far as the, the speaker there, right? Now, but when I'm throwing it, I don't aim at the speaker with the discus. You don't aim at the speaker, because what happens if I, if I aim at the speaker, it's going to land here. Because all of your decisions in the discus itself are affected by gravity, which attracts everything to the earth. All of your intentions are affected by an invisible force that draws them down. There are not many invisible forces that accidentally make you suddenly feel better. Have you noticed this? There aren't. You know, no one wakes up on a Monday morning and thinks, oh, another Monday. I can't get over this wonderful feeling that's just gripped my soul. <laughs> no, if you want a good feeling, you have to do something to make it happen. If you want a bad feeling, just stay alive. There's one about to arrive, right? The thing about aiming is you always have to aim up, not straight up. To aim straight up is to risk disaster upon yourself. But you have to aim at a very happy 45 degrees. You don't aim, you don't aim, where, you don't aim where you know it's going to land. Stop. You need to stop aiming your life where you know it's going to land. Why would you do that? Like, for, let's for, for instance, the, the special new diet that you start tomorrow, it will land on Wednesday. But don't aim for that. It will land there, Tico. We know this because that's where all the other ones landed. Right? We're not stupid. Right? Any new endeavor, if it's positive, particularly if it's positive for other people, it's going to crash and burn at some point much shorter than the target. But you don't aim for where you know your life will land. You, aim, you, you don't aim even beyond the fence. When you aim a discus, you're not even aiming over the hills. You somehow, when you throw a discus, you almost have to aim it at eternity. When you throw a discus, you throw it at the stars. You throw it into space. You throw it far beyond, right? You know that it won't land there. You know that it's going to land 15 feet away and it'll hit the grass. Which is why to throw a discus, you have to activate faith. To throw, to project towards a goal, you have to aim high, you have to activate faith, because you will not get there. Here's the, thing, here's the thing you can't do. You can't aim for where you know it's going to land, because it'll always fall short. In, our, in my family, where I grew up, and... Um, Across the family, there's a pretty well understood uh, idea around school certificate. Remember school certificate back in the olden days? Sit around at school all year. At the end, they test you. And we had a, we had a saying in our family that a 51, 51%, 51% represents a 1% wasted effort. <laughs> well, not, not, not all the adults in the family ascribe to this. But a, a large number of the uncles did and all of the cousins, right? <laughs> but how many know if you make 50% your goal, 
You can't be surprised. Let's say hypothetically someone I know got 18% in art. I don't, know how, I don't know how this hypothetical person whose name we won't mention managed 18% in art, but I can tell you this, there wasn't a huge amount of effort and certainly none wasted. <laughs> recently, my, my daughter recently played football this last winter. She played football for the very first time as a 15-year-old. At seven, she convinced us that ballet was a team sport. So she was excluded from, she was excused from team sports, but chose without consulting us just to play football this last winter, which was pretty exciting. And she got into the C team, which is pretty amazing for the first time playing football. Big high school, but there were only three teams, but she got into the C team. A lot of her friends who were really passionate football players also got into the C team. The previous year they'd been in the A team. So for year 10, they were in the A team, but year 11, they got into the C team. And how this transpired was, they felt that the A team was a little demanding. Like there was two practices. You had to wear a uniform, the correct uniform. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things that they didn't like about it. Uh, there was shouting involved by the coach. Uh, and so they decided to aim for the B team, which meant, of course, that they got into the C team. Do you know, the mistake we make sometimes is we aim for where we know it's going to land. Imagine if we aim this church where we know it's going to land. Oh, there'll be so many people here next week. There'll be this many kids. There'll be this. The music will be this good. You know, the coffee will be X good. There'll be X number of visitors. There'll be so many miracles, right? Well, that's what we know is going to happen. So what we do, the reason we do that is because we're, because we're weak-minded, sniveling creatures. We aim where we know it's going to land. We, do, we aim where we know it's going to land so that we don't have to deal with disappointment. I think we've got to get used to disappointment because we have to live our whole life, right? It's a lot of Wednesdays. Yeah, a lot of great, exciting Mondays. Yeah, let's do this. But there's also a lot of Wednesdays where you're stuffing a cream cake in your face and feeling miserable. <laughs> we've got to learn how. We've got to learn how to walk down. We've got to learn how to walk 15 feet, pick up the discus, aim at the stars and throw it again. We've got to learn how to keep picking ourselves up, keep aiming at faith, keep believing for something amazing, keep pushing ourselves into the distance. If we keep aiming where we know it's going to land just to avoid disappointment, we're in trouble. The other mistake that a lot of people do, which I think is cute, I think in New Zealand we're less prone to this, it's more of an Australian thing, is that in New Zealand what we do is we aim where we know it's going to land and it falls even short and we become even more miserable. Case in point, all of New Zealand's novel history, all of the movies that we made, all of the short stories written. It's a miserable world if you think about it literally from New Zealand. But what Australians do is they throw it, it goes 15 feet, and they say, wow, this is amazing. This is the greatest thing ever. This is exactly what we're aiming for. No, it wasn't. You losers, pick it up and throw it again, right? You're not brilliant. Right, so you fall into one of two categories. One of you, some of you are getting more and more miserable as you deal with disappointment. The rest of you are dancing around a 15-foot discus throw thinking you're a hero. 
Neither of the things are true. The reality is that every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whether you're a business owner, father, mother, school student, unemployed person, whatever you are, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you've got to pick up a discus and aim it at the stars. You've got to lift your expectation and aim for something amazing. Okay, let's, just, oh, let's get this out of the way. You are all losers, terrible, terrible losers. Every single thing you've tried hasn't quite worked out. You're not as good a husband as you should be. You're not as good a wife as you should be. You're not as good a father as you should be. You're not as good a mother as you should be. You're not a very good business owner. You're not a very good employee. Most of you students aren't studying hard enough. If you're in high school, you're nearly doing nothing. Some of you have got piles of laundry sitting at home that needs folding and putting away. Some of you have got dirty laundry kicked under the bed so your wife can't see. The reality is, all of us are living far below the expectation of what we could do. Okay, we've got that out of the way. Welcome to my club. We've got a hand signal, our gang signal is this. Okay, so we're losers, so what? We've got two choices. We just live in the mire or we pick up the discus. That's not that heavy. We aim it at the stars and we throw it. Well, here's one thing. Here's one thing. It's not going to go very far, so we don't have to walk very far to pick it up. <laughs> There's a bright side to everything. Right? It's not going to, you know, if you know by Wednesday your diet failed, at least you can prepare yourself with the speech you tell yourself after you've, after you've finished the cream cake, not before, you don't want to spoil it. After you finish the cream cake, you can get back on the saddle for another couple of days, right? Obviously, obviously, I'm talking about real life here. If you came just for some happy thoughts about some spiritual realities that mean nothing, you've come to the wrong place. Because this is we're about equipping people for life through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's about understanding the reality that we're always going to miss the mark, but we can always pick up the discus. Amen? Okay. Okay, dokie. We're going to do some scriptures now so that people can feel relaxed about the fact that they're in church. Uh, and that also, also so the elders feel like that they can uh, invite me back again another time. The, um, okay, there's two people in the Bible that illustrate this point majestically. Uh, they are King David and King Saul. Isn't it funny we always say them in that order uh, because we like to forget about Saul. But really, both of them are appalling. King David and King Saul, two characters in the Bible. One is a villain and one is a hero. Um, but the reality is that their lives, the trajectory of their lives was almost identical. There's not two characters in the Bible more similar than King David and King Saul in everywhere except the final outcome. They were both chosen, ordained, called. They are both chosen to be king, chosen to be the master of something, chosen to be the rule of something, chosen to lead something, right? Chosen to be king. They were actually both anointed. So they're chosen, then they were anointed, and then they were both military heroes who were famous. Both of them were. Same, same, same. And then they both failed spectacularly. It's a very hard word. They both failed 
massively. If we could edit the first word, obviously there's a lot of words you might need to edit, but, but uh, they both failed massively. So they were both, everyone say it with me, they were both chosen, they were both anointed, they were both heroes, and they were both failures. Just like you, they were chosen. A lot of people I meet live in a scientific reality, Caleb. They live in a scientific reality. I've decided that that is boring. The fact that science is keeping alive, you know, the earth spinning, rah, 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 uh, and, and my heart, you know, the fact that material realities exist is true but boring and unhelpful, right? The fact that your heart is still beating means you'll wake up tomorrow, but it won't help you get out of bed. The fact that the fact that the Holy Spirit is sustaining my very existence by keeping the cells of my body in order so that my heart is still beating, not only do I get to wake up, but I've also got a reason to get out of bed. The scientific reality is pointless and meaningless. The scientific realities are built on the fact that a spiritual reality of a God who created everything that exists sustains the functions of the universe to the, in the same way that your cells keep going at the same, the same power holds the the, the atoms of the chair together, despite the fact that invisible things are passing through your body and the chair and right through the earth at the same time. It doesn't bear thinking about it. The reality is that God's chosen you. How do I know God's chosen you? Because you are not dead. Right? If, you were, if, if God wasn't choosing you, he would, have re- he would have recalled you to the next thing which is either a parallel universe or heaven, one or the other, right? He would have recalled you back to the next thing. But God's chosen you. So that has implications for how you aim your discus. There's implications for your tomorrow and your Wednesday, for your brand new starts and your failures. There's implications for how you deal with failure on the fact that God chose you. Well, did God know that you were going to be part of the loser gang with Jordan? Eventually, you'd be with me in the loser gang. I think he may have known that. It fits within our theology as conservative Pentecostals that God knows everything. As tricky as you think you are, he knows all about the mistakes that you make, right? You've convinced everybody else that you didn't, the discus is still flying through the air. Right? But God knows it's in the grass, half buried in the mud. So God knew when he chose you. So God's actually, do you know what God's actually? He's actually pretty relaxed about it. They were both anointed. They were both anointed by Samuel, the prophet, who's a type of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They're both anointed. Now, anointing, the, the idea of the anointing in the Bible isn't a happy feeling like it was in Pentecostal churches in the 1990s. It's not a happy feeling. It's the empowerment of God's presence for the purpose to which you were created. So the anointing makes you a better computer programmer, a better father. The anointing makes you a better driver. The anointing makes you a better neighbor. The anointing makes you better at keeping your house tidy, right? Because it's the empowerment of God's presence towards the thing that you're purposed for. Right, both of these guys were anointed with the Holy Spirit by Samuel, and the oil was poured, the same recipe of oil was poured out of the same container onto their heads. 
So they were chosen and they were anointed and you were chosen and you're anointed. The Bible's really clear. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you don't need a teacher. So what are you doing listening to me? Well, hold on, wait, 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 wait. You don't need me to tell you that everything I've told you already, you already knew. A great, you know what, the best sermons you ever hear are the ones you already knew. When you hear a sermon, you think, whoa, that's a bit new. It's probably not a good sermon. <laughs> right, well, I've never thought, that doesn't seem to make any sense. We have to wear our left shoe on our right foot. This is weird, church, right? Now, the, the reality is this. You, it's the anointing that instructs you, empowers you towards your purpose. Do you know what? In your life, I'm not really an expert. Because you have to live your life. You're anointed to do your life. That's why as a church, Tigger's already mentioned this, it's all the people that you touch this week that this message will touch. That the, the anointing from the worship flows through the city, not, not, uh, not through the airwaves, that doesn't flow out there. It goes in your heart, then from your heart through the city. That's how we become a fragrance that impacts the city as you... Uh, work, walk in your anointing, okay? So the anointing, they both failed spectacularly as you also do. The only thing that's different is what happened after they were confronted by their sin, right? This is what we know about David, King David and King Saul. It's what happened in their confrontation moment with sin. So I want, to, I want us to look into the story. If you don't know the stories well, I encourage you to read them or listen to them. They're, they're, they're powerful stories about the, the life of the hero, which is how we set our own focus in life is as heroes, right? Samuel said to Saul, what have you done? If that's the first thing your mom says, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Saul replied, I saw that my men were scattering from me, and you didn't arrive. He'd been waiting seven days for Samuel to arrive. You didn't arrive. The, the, the Holy Spirit didn't turn up. And when you said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash, and they're ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us, a little girl, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Check this out, though. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Yeah. If you're listening to this recording, I just made a hand gesture to my left and looked into an imaginary space at 45 degrees. But now your kingdom must end. Right? Now your kingdom will end. Like the. <laughs> For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Same hand gesture. Eyes mystically looking, right? God's looking for a man after his own heart who's. I'm after this. I'm after something. Right? The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Isn't that interesting, eh? Then jump over to the next one. This is, this is the next time Saul does basically the same thing. Saul admits to Samuel, yes, I've sinned. In this case, he, he failed to kill the, the, wrong, the right person, killed the wrong people, kept a whole lot of animals for himself that he should have sacrificed. He, he sort of, all sort of technicalities really, right? Just a bit of, you know, well, you know, anyway. And he's like, yeah, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and I've disobeyed the Lord's command because I was afraid of the people and I did what they demanded. Okay. 
But now, please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Jump in ahead, next one. Samuel replied, I'm not going to go back with you. You've rejected the Lord's command and he has rejected you as king over Israel. Are you with me? Is this, this is compelling, isn't it, right? Okay. As Samuel turned to go, Saul took hold of the edge of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from Israel, of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he's not human that he should change his mind. So God permanently removes from Saul this aim of this kingdom, right? Permanently. God, God, Saul, Saul, Samuel says, God's decided this. The next day, he, he, Samuel tells him again, and then says, God's never going to change his mind about you. Three cheers for the New Testament, right? <laughs> Then Saul pleaded again. Check out, this is Saul in desperation moment. Look at what he says. I know that I've sinned. Pretty humble. But please, at least honor me in front of the elders of my people before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord God with you. God takes away the big dream of an eternal kingdom and says, I'm never giving it back to you. And he says, okay, fine, but just here and now, can you come to the party with me so that I'm not embarrassed in front of my friends? Okay, this is a very, very strange perspective. So the distant dream disappears and Saul pleads for immediate comfort. Saul is aiming at the grass. He's unaware of the eternal perspective. Wonder what it's like in our life. Are are we holding the right things precious? Oh, as long as I can pay my mortgage. Not really good to pay your mortgage, but there's actually a bigger thing to aim at. Oh, I really want some new clothes from Huffer. That's for you, Ruben. Um, (laughs) But there's actually something more important to aim at. Come on, Helen's knows there's good value. You can also give to missions. He's not accepting the word. (laughs) Come on, there's something bigger to aim at. You could lose it all here and now and win it all forever. You could lose it all forever and win it all here and now. We've got to ask ourselves, where are we aiming at? Because the trajectory of your aim is critically important because God's looking for people who are after His own heart. Amen? Thank you. That was good. I was hoping for a round of applause there because that was that's my that's my big best point of the whole sermon. If you're waiting for a, a climax beyond that, that's it. We hit the top. The musicians are coming. We've got to wrap it up. <laughs> I did promise we'd look at David as well, so just bear with me. Six minutes forty. Let's look at David. Nathan said to David, "You're the man." The Lord God of Israel says, "I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul." If there's young people in block your ears soon. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. If that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and you've stolen his wife. Okay, 
if anyone thinks the Bible is a good book, you got to understand it's full of bad, bad things. Right? Okay, I don't always read this bit out when I'm preaching, but it's pretty full on. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says, because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. There was a civil war down the track. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. He will go to bed with them in public view. Somebody did that. They slept with all of David's concubines on the palace roof so the whole nation could see. This is a really bad Wednesday. There's a bit more than a cream cape going down at this point, right? This is where... God says to David, because you've done this, your whole life is going to be turned inside out and upside down. I'm going to shake the crap out of you. Everything's going to be messed up. Sorry, I'll throw, I'm still going, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Next one, you're right, you were right the first time, sorry. You did it secretly, but I'll make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Keep going, I think. Is there one more? No, that's it. Brilliant. Sorry. I could probably could have remembered that without reading it. Here's the deal. God says to David, because you've done this thing, I'm going to mess up all of your personal circumstances. Your family, the nation, politically, militarily, your, your intimate relationships are going to be affected by this. The child who was born uh, uh, to Uriah's wife died at the, at the, at the command of God, right? Super heavy. And then David writes Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Is this a little bit weird? You know, David starts fasting and praying at this point, And he fasts and prays until the child dies. And then he gets up and says, oh, there's no point fasting anymore. It's all going to go down. He realizes God's not going to change his mind. God's not going to change his mind about smashing and crushing David's circumstances. How many know this is a bad deal? But David understands it's not a bad deal. It's a good deal, right? He says, restore to me the vision. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me the eternal promise because this is going to be bad, but I can pick up even in this sort of a Wednesday, I can pick up the discus and aim again at God's eternal promise of a kingdom that never ends. Isn't that amazing? This is what Jesus said. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. I don't know that that is shocking. People talk about Jesus being a real positive teacher. That's frightening. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. What else are we worrying about? Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Ribbon. Okay, can I tell you this? I, I appreciate people who are wearing something. Like, do wear something. Those are the Jesus shocking teachers, teachings. I appreciate the fact that there's food in the house. I get very nervous when there's not. Particular foods, there's no eggs. Well, there's no, there's no biscuits for the school lunches. How many know that's a disaster? No, no milk for the wheat picks. Like these are, these are emergencies in the Smith house. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. But seek first the kingdom of God. And then what does Jesus say? Just go about naked and eat nothing? No, He says, all those other things take care of themselves. 
See, David recognised his only way through the circumstance was to keep aiming above. All of the circumstances will work themselves out as long as we can connect to the vision and purpose and promise of God for our life. Saul had it completely wrong and said, as long as my personal circumstances provide me emotional comfort here and now, I don't even need to care about eternity. It's all about throwing the discus. It's all about we aiming. And I, and I want to pray specifically before I hand back over to Pastor Tico, I want to pray specifically for two groups of people. The, the first is people who, who, who you've, you've tasted enough disappointment as the discus hits the grass, you've decided to lower your aim. Because I really believe today that God's putting the, those electrical electrodes from the machine that you see on TV and don't really understand what it is. And He's calling clear and He's re-injecting faith and vision in place of that disappointment. How many people know the disappointment is real, but God's replacing it with an injection of the gift of faith. I, I, the whole point of this whole sermon is the, this first thing, God's replacing some disappointment with faith for probably half the people, right? And then half of us, God is wanting to give you in, this, in, the, in, the, in the circumstance now, the, in the mess that you're in. Do you know the worst mess to deal with is the one that's the mess of your own making. If it's, this is why we're so good at blaming other people, I mean, that's why we blame everybody else, right? Because it's impossible, it's nearly impossible to deal with the fact that this is a mess and maybe I am the principal culprit. Do you know, in the mess of your own making, God's not judging you, He's calling you to look again at His eternal promise, right? So maybe why don't we, why don't we um, close our eyes and bow our heads and, and uh, I'm going to get you to identify yourself because I want to I I pray with faith. And so I want to know that the actual people I'm praying for. Um, so if you're here this morning and you can really recognize, everyone else has got their heads bowed on, but you can recognize that, that you've definitely stopped aiming for things you know that God's called you to. Or you've even just stopped aiming for great things and stopped aiming for a good life. You've stopped aiming to be successful. You've lowered your aim to avoid what you know is inevitable disappointment. Because your, 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 your appetite for disappointment is basically gone. If that's you, I just want you to open your hands just on your lap where you're sitting. And I, I, can, I can just, the picture I get is just the, 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 that weight of disappointment is like, a, like sand just running through your fingers. And even some of the things you've been holding on to, you're not going to actually be able to hold on to them anymore. Some of that weight of disappointment is just going to run through your fingers. It's just gonna. It's just leaking out right now. The Holy Spirit's just poked a hole in it, and it's just leaking out. Oh man, you can actually feel like a lightness come into the room. You can feel a weight actually coming almost out of your gut. Just whoa. don't need to be disappointment. Don't need to hold yourself to high standards. Yes, the things you aim at. You hit the grass, but you don't need to judge yourself. You just need to pick up again and engage in faith again. Holy Spirit, I just pray for, the, for these ones right now, Lord God, as, as that disappointment is running out of them, I pray hope and love. I really believe there's, a, there's actually love that's coming to you. 
It's the approval of God. It's the, there's a smile from heaven coming to you to replace that disappointment. It's just the smile of heaven. It's not the instruction of heaven. It's just the smile of God's approval for you. The other group of people were people who are stuck in a mess of their own making. And it might just be, maybe your life's actually in order, but there's an internal mess no one else is aware of that you just can't navigate through. If that's you, just do the same thing. Just open your hands on your lap or if you're comfortable responding like that. And I'm just gonna pray for you. Holy Spirit, right now, I just pray for, for these ones responding now of the, to the challenge of navigating this mess and, and maybe the, the, the shame they feel. Lord God, right now, I just, I just pray strength to them. The word that came to me is something that David himself said that uh, with, my, with God, I can do valiantly. And he said that he can run, run through a troop, right? run through an army. I can run through an army. And he said, I can leap over a wall. Do you know, there's, there's a sense of, 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 of naive confidence that's returning to you. Yes, you know how to make a mess, but you can also run through the mess. You can leap over some of the obstacles that are in front of you. I just pray, Holy Spirit, right now, the stiffening of spine, Lord God, a strength would come to the center of beings right now, Lord God, that as we sit here in your presence, Lord, as disappointment has run out of some and been replaced by love, Lord God, I pray that confusion would, would come out of others and be replaced by the focus and a strength. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody said? Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.